0: This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network
1: of Podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy, science, and changing our future.
3: Hi, I am Lucia. I am a member of the Carbon Almanac Network. Why do we say sustainable? That's only one planet, this is the essence. And if you have a big wish, wish everyone who'll say how we can all live well within the means of the planet. Do we need to empower more, to encourage our families? We need to have access to the education and finding a way to make the information empowerment. How we can start to measure you and to design your own life through the metrics if you have a measure, you gain a voice to build a sustainable future. That's the core of Ometz Walker Nagel' gift. You are going to listen his podcast. He invites us to act, act to make the difference.
0: Bonjour, Grüezi. Buongiorno, Bundi. Do you know the name of these four languages? Est-ce que vous aimez les chips Paprika ou peut-être le Cervis? Sapete da Bell Ticino? Haben Sie schon ein St. Galler Bratwurst mit Bürli If you answered yes to some of these questions and you don't live in Switzerland, you may be part of the more than 700,000 Swiss citizens who live abroad. No! Congratulations! This podcast is for you and for the ones who stayed inland but are curious to learn more about why you left, I know, that sounds crazy, and other irrelevant questions. Welcome to 5th Switzerland, la cinquième Suisse. I'm your host, Valérie. I'm very pleased that Mathis Fackernagel accepted my invitation to interview him despite his busy schedule. He's working relentlessly for our planet and has won multiple awards. His awareness began as a child.
1: Even though the whole mainstream culture felt we had to expand, that's the only way forward, it was clear to me as a child that this is not really possible. And I became an engineer because of that too, because I was convinced we'll have to go through a huge transition pretty fast.
0: He's on a mission to use metrics as an agent of change.
1: Most information is not useful even counterproductive. If information is not empowering, it's not going to go anywhere because then people will use their whole brain to fight it.
0: The idea of Overshoot Day is having a lot of success around the world. What does it look like for Switzerland?
1: Switzerland uses four and a half times more than what ecosystems in Switzerland can renew. Good luck.
0: Yes, it's time to act because we are running on a Ponzi scheme.
1: It is a Ponzi scheme because we are paying the present by depleting the future. And that's illegal financially in most countries, but ecologically, it's encouraged by most countries.
0: So let's hear him now. Matisse, welcome to 5th Switzerland. You know, first, thank you for taking the time to be here with me today, because I know that you have a very busy schedule
1: Don't mention it. That's (laughs) totally fine.
0: (laughs) So, I really appreciate that you take the time. So, I will very quickly introduce you in a few words. Uh, You were born and you grew up in Basel. Oui,
1: that's up.
0: Then, you moved to Zurich to study at the ETH. And then, you moved to Canada for your PhD. And it's there that you co founded the ecological footprint with Professor David Rees.
1: It's called. Sorry, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs>
0: you know, I remember when I first heard about the ecological footprint because I was very enthusiastic about the idea to be able to calculate our footprint because our impact on nature is difficult to grasp as a whole, and so I found that was brilliant. But before we speak more about that, could you share some memories of your childhood moments that had an impact on your future?
1: There are a number of childhood experiences that shaped me. One is that I was extremely privileged by being able to go on vacations on a farm very often. I grew up in Basel and my grandfather had a house in the countryside where we could spend time and there was a farm there and so I could help the farmer. As a small child, that just means walking behind him, you know, it was exciting kind of milk the cows and spread manure and pick the apples and all these kind of things. So just the relationship between food and where it comes from and, and how much work it is and the rural urban relationships and all that fascinated me as a child. Also kind of the urbanites looking down on the farmers, but the farmers were such nice people. You know, it's kind of how is it possible that they work so hard for us to feed us and what do we give them back? You know, not much. Also, obviously, my parents and grandparents lived through World War II and a big piece for Switzerland, the physically most stunning thing for the Swiss, I think, was just the the resource insecurity that I think Switzerland only had about seven months of food per year and then had to stretch it somehow. So the importance of food and, and resource security was a recurring story in my childhood. And then when I was 11 years old, the oil crisis hit and Switzerland in its heroic approach to farsighted policy. I <laughs> had three, I think, three car-free Sundays. And for me, as an 11-year-old, it was fascinating. We could bicycle on the highways. The air was much more pure. And so it was so much more fun and quiet and great and people are in a good mood. So I had a really good time. Probably my parents were a bit more worried, you know, but for us children, say, wow, fossil fuel-free future. That's awesome. Uh, limits to growth came out around those days i was a very lazy reader my father was very worried i wouldn't get anywhere he was an engineer and so he also showed me limits to growth
0: for people who don't know about this very important report can you just say a few words about limits absolutely to growth? so
1: limits to growth was a report to the club of rome back then of industrialists who worried about the predicament of. Humankind. And so they contracted uh, researchers from the MIT for the first time to use a computer to look at scenarios. What's the dynamics of the human economy on a limited planet? So they came out with different possibilities. And for me as a child, like, and I liked more math than words, obviously, I was just fascinated by these graphs, like the, how a computer is kind of thinking about the world, et cetera. And so kept my interest going forever because it was also clear. I mean, as a child, it was clear it's not possible to always expand on a limited planet. You know? And so even though the whole mainstream culture felt we had to expand, that's the only way forward, it was clear to me as a child that this is not really possible. And I became an engineer because of that too, because I was convinced we'll have to go through a huge transition pretty fast and we need a totally new way of living on this planet. And engineering would be important, you know. So, But then uh, even though I started engineering, we didn't learn anything about the energy transition. It was all about that old technology and old industry and all that. And so I realized it takes a bit more uh, than that. And so I was very lucky to be able to get a scholarship to go to Canada and learn more about the social sides, like regional planning. So it's kind of engineering on the social side. That's really the idea, how do we make transitions happen from a policy perspective? And that's where the ecological footprint then Developed. It was inspired, obviously, by these childhood experiences as well. There was also a, a booklet from a Swiss economist, uh, Rudolf Stram, who once was the uh, the consumption pope of Switzerland. I don't know if you remember him.
0: Yeah. Why are they so poor?
1: Exactly. They had this book. Why are they so poor? Warum sie so arm sind? And and they, and they had these kind of graphs too. And one of the graphs was to show how much land it takes to support uh, people at different kind of income levels.
0: But I was struck by this book too. Mm-hmm.
1: Actually, I just wrote to him recently to kind of thank him for the inspiration. And he was very kind.
0: Oh, wow! <laughs> Maybe I should do that too. Then in 2003, you founded the Global Footprint Network. Can you tell us your mission in a few words?
1: So the vision is, how can we all thrive within the limits of our planet Earth? So it's kind of like how to make that vision relevant and empowering.
0: In a TED talk, you said that your obsession is to avoid ecological bankruptcy through metrics. So Mm -hmm. I guess you would say that what you bring to the world is a way to really uh, concretely measure and know where we are at.
1: And to make metrics really useful, because most information is not useful, even counterproductive. If information is not empowering, it's not going to go anywhere. Because then people will use their whole brain to fight it. So if we don't find a way to make our information empowering, we better stay home and think (laughs) a little bit more.
0: I guess that's the very challenging part, because since you say, even, you know, children in elementary school can understand the problem, the issue Mm -hmm. that we have a limited world. You can even see it. We saw it from far away. Then how do you... Uh, get people to change something about it. And I saw that this uh, Earth Overshoot Day, it's a very good idea for people to really concretely see the situation. And with the hashtag, move the date.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: I think you can speak throughout generation also to young people and you don't need scientific knowledge to understand what's going on.
1: But still, that's probably one of my biggest prides. I didn't come up with the idea of overshoot. There was a friend of ours from the New Economics Foundation who suggested it initially. And it's a way to explain something central to human survival that is poorly understood, which is the idea of overshoot, that we can use more from nature, nature can renew, and that ultimately depletes nature and ultimately depletes us. So uh, and overshoot will end. The question is whether we end it by design or by disaster. You know, so that's that, that's a choice. But Overshoot day can be explained in ways that primary school students understand, like very simple words. From January 1st to July 28th, people used as much from nature as the planet can renew in the entire year. And primary school students understand January. They understand July 28th. They know it's far away from Christmas, and Christmas is still not the end of the year. So both in terms of conceptually understanding it and even quantitatively, it provides a very interesting reference point. Now, Overshoot Day has become quite popular. We have about 7 billion media impressions around the world for Earth Overshoot Day, which is great. Most of it is a bit of simple stories. that say, oh my God, we're out of resources. Goodbye. What should we do? (laughs) And so I think it's only about the last two years that we have figured out a way how to tell the story in a more empowering way. It's essentially to turn it around and say, The future has never been more predictable. What we know about the future is that people who want to eat and sleep and be safe and move around, we know that. And we always knew that. That's a big part of the future. But we also know that in any imaginable scenario, there will be more climate change. And because of that, also more resource constraints. Now, we don't know exactly the ratio between the two. We can choose to move out of fossil fuel use more quickly and have less climate change, but then we don't have the fossil fuels, which are a significant input into current economies or vice versa. So, But there's always a combination of climate change and resource constraints in any future. So given that, and given that this future is coming more rapidly to us than our physical infrastructure, our transport systems, our energy generators, our housing stock, etc., is able to adjust their future, it's coming more quickly. Given that, the question becomes extremely simple. What will be valuable in that predictable future? Why invest in things that will lose in value? So what's gonna be more valuable? And our answer is simple and I would say radical, but radical in the sense, wow, if you take that on, you start to realize that radical sustainability and astute business strategy goes hand in hand. Because we would say what's valuable for companies, and you can apply the same concept for cities or countries, but for companies, we would say companies which, when they expand, reduce global overshoot, they will be the most valuable ones. And why is that? It's because they will not run into physical constraints and also they will be needed more. There's no downside. So if you think as an investor, we say, where should we put our investments?
0: But still, we are not there. I saw that you published a paper entitled, Is the Global Economy Running a Ponzi Scheme? So I guess you have some hypotheses of the key reasons for blindness in this end game.
1: Yeah, this paper was kind of a funny paper because normally you make a long argument to make the case in that paper. I started saying, Yes, that's no question. let me explain you why it is a ponzi ski because we are paying the present by depleting the future and that's illegal financially in most countries but ecologically it's encouraged by most countries which is silly don't know why anyhow so from the rational perspective yes the market does not recognize it as much yet but that means that the market vastly underestimates the value of the more value-generating assets. So, yeah, why is the world not doing it? I think people are not driven by the profit motive, but by their obsessions, by their habits. You know, So we're stuck in our habits that we look what the others do and then we imitate the others. And if everybody else does it, it must be normal, we think. And since, I mean, I'm now 60, I've lived my entire life in the fossil fuel age. I cannot imagine anything else. Even though in reality, in my lifetime, I think roughly about 85% of all the fossil fuels ever burned were burned in my lifetime. So I think it's normal. But in the course of history, not even geological history, but like recorded history, (laughs) it's a blip.
0: So you, you would think it's more like habits, that it's very hard to change when it works like that. And what you speak about is the future then people in the presence, it's hard for that to change unless there is like, there was COVID and then you are obliged to change. Or now there is the war in Ukraine. So all of a sudden everybody wakes up and like, oh, oh, energy. Oh, okay. Where does it come from? What can we do? You know, like you need to go against the wall to...
1: It's a habit covered up by a big layer of pain, which fortifies that habit. So we as Swiss nationals, have a little bit of an advantage in terms of that pain living in Europe of being able to kind of telling ourselves a story to dissociate ourselves from the colonial history. The colonial history of Europe was a way to get resources from somewhere else, massive access to resources that were not available at the same quantity. And that story is not told anymore. (laughs) We do as if it never happened, but are still in that mindset. So the colonial mindset is not a privilege of white people only. Just the Europeans were very good at it in the last century and the century before and the centuries before. But the colonial mindset really is the idea that you can always get more from somewhere else. So the whole urbanization trend you see around the world is driven by that mindset too, because what secures the resource availability for these cities? So we build structures without having the resource security to maintain these structures. Actually, the colonial mindset limits those stuck in that mindset in totally misallocating their investments in things that may not have a future for them. I think that's misunderstood. I think the pain is so strong that we not don't dare even to think about it. So it's not just a habit. A new booklet came out. It's called La Pensée Blanche. But I gave it to my ninety-three-year-old mother. She's from Switzerland. Yes. <laughs> She loved it and said, oh, my God, it changed my views. It's fabulous. I spoke with young French women about the book. And the book actually makes a lot of parallel between women liberation and emancipation and kind of colonialism and racism. And so actually kind of tries to kind of make a persuasive argument to be able to empathize to that issue. And still for that young French women I talked to, it was very painful to read. I saw one of the memoirs of um, Francois Mitterrand, socialist president of France. He spoke with Elie Wiesel to talk about everything, World War II and being prisoner of war and force le frappe, but not one word about colonialism. Even though Mitterrand was minister during that time in charge of colonial affairs, signing death warrants for people who tried to free themselves in Algeria.
0: Contrary to the colonialist time, we can't always count on other people's resources and we have to begin to be more self sufficient.
1: Where the political class underestimates or misjudges the situation is that they're shying away from rationing. They think rationing would be opposed. If I was a conseiller in Switzerland, in May I would have said, Dear Swiss, There's a war in the world, luckily on our border, so we don't have to mobilize, but we are part of an economic war and we need to outsmart that and we can, we can organize ourselves. And so what we will do is because every molecule of gas we burn now, we won't have in the winter, we will use our smarts and we will start to have simple rationing. Everybody gets X and if you use more, then it just costs 10 times more. And if some people have problems, they should come to talk with us. And maybe if there's really hardship, then we work with them. The Companies, same thing. You get ninety percent of what you used before. All above is ten times more expensive, and we see how that goes, because we wish we can think ahead. We don't let ourselves bully by others. I'll report back in a month and see how it goes, and if we have to adjust, you know. But we'll stick together. Good night. You know, something <laughs> like that, you know. So, and I think people would have taken it in strides because they felt this level of solidarity so rationing is not central control rationing is a way to establish solidarity Mm -hmm. because now without that you just produce cynicism oh it's all voluntary you can reduce your energy consumption but my neighbor showers much longer Mm -hmm. screw them why should i try to shower less if my neighbor doesn't and it just produces cynicism and resentment so i think we misjudge the goodwill of people and kind of how we need to stick together and how to truthfully talk about the situation because people are worried they know that something is not right but approaching it in a way that it feels like a level of solidarity and kind of fairness people step up to the plate i'm sure so i think we are caught in our own stories and narratives that severely limit us and i think we we underestimate In Berkeley, they have all these bumper stickers on the car. One of the most beautiful ones says, "Don't believe what you think." Mm, And I think we believe too much what we think. We believe too much our narratives. Like one of the narratives that is so limiting, in my view, says kind of the stigma that hangs over the entire conversation. Yeah, we should do something, but it's so inconvenient. The more I know about it, the worse I am off. If I actually accepted this, then I would have to lead a miserable life. I would have to give myself up for humanity, but I'd rather keep eating a small chocolate and, you know, have a nice life. That's kind of the inner story. That's how we hold it. And it goes all the way to the UN that we end up having silly negotiations about climate change. What do we negotiate about? Which part of zero do we need to negotiate about? Actually, if nobody else acts, which seems to be the case that we think there's too little action in the world, if all the others are too lackadaisical, then our risk exposure is even higher. And the rational thing to do is to prepare yourself even faster because the risk exposure is high. Switzerland uses four and a half times more than what ecosystems in Switzerland can renew. Good luck. Where should I come from? Oh, we have money, do we? Forever? Actually, as income increase around the world, it increases faster in lower income segments. And we have more people competing for those resources. So the Swiss person's access to the global cake, financially speaking, has dropped 30-40% in the last 30 years. So our relative advantage is shriveling in a world that is in a never more tight situation. So using four and a half Switzerland in Switzerland seems a little risky to me. But the whole mindset is, oh, we need to run to Egypt, negotiate. Oh, my God, what's the position of our delegation? Really
0: <laughs> you must pull your hair sometimes now when you see yeah, I've
1: lost some as you can see <laughs>
0: <laughs> because
1: it's frustrating I mean because you know I'm I'm not reducing my footprint. I'm increasing my resource security, which seems to be the same thing, but it's emotionally much more soothing. If I reduce my footprint and I give myself up for you and then you don't give yourself up and I'm resentful of you. yeah if I build my resource security, I feel oh actually I live in a climate that is quite easy. My house has photovoltaics. I'm trying to make it more efficient energetically. I know how to live with simple foods. I'd love to get around by bicycle. I'm fine. I'm fascinated by how much we can misguide ourselves through our own thinking by being stuck in narratives that don't serve us that are not even reflective of reality.
0: You have, I guess, spoken with a lot of people, politicians, businessmen, scientists, What's your feeling about for capacity to make partnerships work together to get somewhere where it's the less damage possible for us?
1: I mean, as I said, I think the future has never been more predictable. You know, it's about climate change and resource constraints being a significant driver. There's not one future for everybody. It depends actually how you react to that future. There's no benefit waiting. There's no benefit not preparing yourself. So we have agency at any level so you don't have to wait for others on the contrary so so there's not one future in that way i'm surprised how poorly understood the challenge is by many
0: do you think it's because they don't want to see it it's quite easy to understand no
1: i think there's this delusion we can buy ourselves out of the problem that we're actually isolated that also was manifested for me i mean i don't know have you followed In the cop 27 one of the so-called outcomes was that the so-called fund being promised to support countries that are most exposed to climate risks and i wonder if that's not counterproductive even because those who put the funds up then believe even more that it's not about them it's just kind of being nice to others but that will not have impact on them So the cost of that money is very high because it strengthens a misconception that in the end is deadly for ourselves. Actually, we did a media search on to what extent is overshoot understood. Ecological overshoot appeared in 400 articles last year. It's overshoot day in about 10,000 articles. SDGs or sustainable development goals, one million articles, but none of them says or recognizes that the SDGs have to set up today are negatively correlated with ecological sustainability. They're actually still driving us over the cliff. This is too weak how they're established. And then climate change now has 5 million articles, five and a half, I think it was, more than about economic growth or GDP. And maybe that's great, but climate change is just one part of overshoot. And it's the most vicious one on some level that if you just look at carbon, people are even more convinced that we're in a tragedy of the commons, that I have to give myself up to reduce my emissions for the benefit of humanity. So why should I give myself up for the rest of humanity? That's mm-hmm. what people think secretly. Rather than recognize that climate change is just one part of the pipe, climate change produces resource scarcity. There will be less resource available. So being very resource dependent will not get you anywhere. And we cannot adjust our economies very quickly. So climate change actually It's really hitting you. I think it was actually a Geneva doctor told me. He said, people are much more worried about empty bridges than overfilling garbage cans. So I think we need to be able to tell the story in a way much more emotionally resonant, because we only look at one side of the pipe and not the other, and then realize that this is a combo deal. (laughs) It's not, (laughs) oh, now it's climate change and tomorrow it's biodiversity. It's all the same thing our metabolism has become too big compared to what Earth can renew. And so as symptoms, we see deforestation. We see decline of species. We see climate change. We see depletion of fresh water. We see symptoms. It's not that complicated. So why does it make it so hard to see that? I mean, it's, it's disturbing on some level emotionally, but it's also fascinating what holds us back. And my best answer now is, I mean, we are able to explain it better, but we are just in love with our own stories and thoughts. So it has become a mass culture. I mean, how many people still say developing and developed countries? It doesn't explain anything. It doesn't describe anything. There's no definition for it. It just is maintaining a colonial mindset to think, oh, there are two types of countries. Mm. Really? Mm. Isn't it like this one physics? Some have higher income, yeah. Some have lower income right now. Some have mountains. Some have access to oceans. Some have deserts. The are 200 different countries. They're all exposed to physics and they have all had their histories. And the question is, like, how are we able to operate within the budgets, like the, the physical budgets that we have available? And some have a lot of bike capacity. Some have little bike capacity.
0: People don't succeed to have a general view. They so always see from the point of view. And as you say, that this common, like... Why should I do something when there are people who are polluting more than me and they don't do anything? And how do you get them to understand that anyway, it's all linked? So, I mean, if you decide to do nothing because the others are not doing, I mean, it's bad for you too. (laughs) That's
1: why we believe telling the story from a resource security perspective becomes more meaningful to say, if the rest of the world is not preparing themselves and they keep polluting They won't be able to have a future so you depending on them becomes even more dangerous so resource security is your ticket to choice and possibility and that doesn't happen overnight so prepare yourself there's a lot of complexity talk to me people feeling uneasy think oh my god but they have an idea of what the therapy may be and they think the therapy may be worse than disease so they like to complexify so we things can stay as they are without having to kind of look bad and saying, oh, I want to mm-hmm. not change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's all a PR activity.
0: Well, let's hope that, you know, your message gets through and that there is some pressure and politicians, you know, like feel more that they need to do something now and not in like 10 or 20 years on the from the bottom up too, people are more conscious and that they are not overwhelmed yeah. thinking, oh, you know, anyway, we are doomed. I can't do anything.
1: I think but... that's where it starts. I think it's kind of how do we tell the stories to ourselves? Because the politicians in the end just represent how we tell the stories. So let's take charge of our story and say, what's really going on? I want to live in a resource secure Switzerland, for example. What does that mean? Not building that resource secure future is bad for me and bad for us. Now we still have like our economic plans in any country, with very few exceptions. There's no sense of resource security being significant of a parameter. It's kind of la la land. (laughs) 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 Think, I mean, it's not the politicians; it's the universities that are deceiving the young people. Our education system, media stories as well, kind of that are not kind of capturing it well. There's so many entry points how we can see the world a bit more productively.
0: You have to hire an army of storytellers.
1: <laughs> Thank you for being one, Valerie. <laughs> <laughs> because
0: yeah, the metrics works with certain person and not with others. You have to touch yeah. people emotionally.
1: It has to, I mean we have to be able to tell empowering stories. That's what that's where we started our conversation.
0: Well, as maybe I told you at the beginning, I am a big fan of your work. The way you were able to make it very accessible to people, the reality of what's the biocapacity and where we are at. And I hope (laughs) that, you know, the message gets through and we accelerate the movement for that. So thank you again, Matisse, for taking the time to be with me. And I hope uh, Swiss people are aware too, because they get often this idea that Switzerland is very clean and they are very good people because they recycle and, you know, they're very careful. And it's good for them also to see what's the reality of uh, what they do, you know.
1: Exactly. Are we truly committed to everyone's success? It's probably a less morally charged question. Yes. <laughs> and I, I don't see the Swiss plan being most effective in securing Switzerland's future, and that pains me.
0: Let's hope they change and listen. <laughs> and the, I guess <laughs> you need maybe some think tank there in Bern, in front of the Palais <laughs> Federal <laughs> to give input.
3: Yeah, maybe.
1: maybe you can (laughs) work on that too
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: so keep the good work I will and good luck you too thanks again now
1: you're most welcome
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the podcast 5th Switzerland. We want to thank Valerie Lucchesi for allowing us to share this episode with you. Special thanks to Lucia Esperanza for introducing us to today's episode. We appreciate you joining us. The Carbon Almanac Podcast Network is a rich resource where listeners aged 6 and up can learn about climate change in many different ways. If you have children in your life, check out Generation Carbon. This podcast was created for kids aged six through ten and invites children to submit questions and be science reporters for the show. Learn more about it and how to get involved at thecarbonalmanac.org/kids.